I wonder if you have a, a waiting room strategy. You know what I'm talking about? You've been in a waiting room, I'm sure, at some point in your life. I wonder if you have a waiting room strategy, a technique that you often go to to help you survive uh, the difficulty of waiting. My waiting room strategy always involves a book. I've been doing this since I was a young man, even a preteen. I would always have a book. Um, this became incredibly relevant when I got married. I love to say that I was never late once in my life, and then I got married. And so uh, I had to find a way to still be happy with my wife when she showed up at the car 10 minutes later than I was ready for her to show up at the car. And so I always had a book. Literally, if you check my car, you'll find a book tucked in the side pocket. And I always have it there so that while I'm waiting for her, I can just read my book instead of getting angry. I have a waiting room strategy. I also like it now. It's quite cool. I was countercultural before it was countercultural. Um, but these days, if you're ever waiting anywhere, what's everybody doing? They're on their phone, worshiping the false god. All right? And so I love to, some, sometimes I don't even bring out my book. I just kind of sit my book down and I just kind of look around as the one outlier in a room full of people tapped into the matrix. What's your uh, waiting room strategy? I always have a book. You need a waiting room strategy when you're caught at a light. Have you ever met people who um, talk to the traffic lights? As it, maybe you're that person. Right? I'm so, <laughs> what do you say? Come on! Like, one, it can't hear you. Two, it's an inanimate object. Three, it's been computer programmed by a bunch of evil guys at the city whose sole purpose in life is to irritate you. <laughs> it's not true. But have you noticed that, like, on Friday evening, for some reason, the lights are conspiring to keep you from getting home? Anybody ever experienced that? It drives me crazy. You need a waiting room strategy at a light. Uh, you need it when you're paying for gas. I don't know what it is about this city, but I think we don't have enough gas stations, or at least not in the part of the city where I live. And so if you go to my gas station at the wrong time of day, you have to line up for gas. Who's ever heard of such a thing? I'm from the GTA. I'm like, what on earth? Are people, has anyone ever cut you off in the gas line? Or is it just me? I may be like a magnet for this kind of thing. The Lord continuing to chasten me and humble me. But like I have literally had nasty Guelph people cut in front of me to take my spot in the gas line. You need a waiting strategy. How about at a doctor's office? All right, we have some doctors in the room, so I'll go a little gently here. But uh, have you noticed that it's your job to arrive on time? It's their job to make you wait. I don't know about you, but I am scrupulously on time when it comes to... In fact, I always show up early when I have a doctor's appointment. Like, I'm always 15 minutes early, and I get there... And I just know that I'm in for punishment, because I'm going to sit there for 15 minutes, and then I'm going to have to wait for them to see me. You better have a waiting room strategy. And God bless our doctors, and God bless our healthcare system... I love them, and I love what they do, and I honor what they do, but make sure you bring a book. You have to have a waiting room strategy when you're buying groceries at Christmas. Did you experience this? I think we don't have enough grocery stores in this town either, because the lineups leading up to Christmas, I kid you not, we're from the cash register. Did you see this? Like, down, it's as, they're down the aisles. It's as if, you know, people think that after Christmas there's going to be no more food left in the city. Dr. Matt and I were going to go wash our cars yesterday at his favorite car wash. He uh, has referred me to his favorite car wash. That's a sign of true love. Love, true love. And so yesterday was the first day I was going to go and use that car wash, and I drove to it and kept driving. Because I kid you not, were the cars 50 deep, Matt? 50 deep waiting for a car wash. And so he actually texted me. He's like, don't come today, bro. I've been waiting for 20 minutes. And you had kids in the car? 
So like you, Tish was in the, oh, one kid in the car. That's a waiting room strategy. Only send one kid, probably the eldest, best behaved of them all. You're going to need a waiting room strategy for that. There's another kind of waiting, okay, beyond just lines. You're waiting for your kids to grow up. Won't it be nice when they stop leaving their underwear on the kitchen counter? Somebody say hallelujah. That's going to be really nice. You know, (laughs) won't it be nice when they just kind of join you in, Whatever toil you have to do that day, they just kind of show up on your hip and, hey, Dad, I thought it'd be a great idea for me to help you shovel the driveway. That would be really nice, you know? Wouldn't it be nice when they, like, develop a work ethic of their own? You'll be, you, you might have to praise the Lord that day. You might have to, woo it happens, right? It happens. You're waiting for your kids to grow up. Maybe you're waiting for your spouse to be perfect. I mean, keep waiting. <laughs> Nick and I celebrated our 23rd wedding anniversary yesterday. I give you honor in this house, Nikki Fraser. You're a sweet woman. Thank you for dealing with my imperfections for 23 years. If you're waiting for your spouse to be perfect, you're going to need a waiting room strategy for that one. Maybe you're waiting for a spouse. That's not an easy wait. You're going to need a waiting room strategy. And uh, lucky for you, you'll find it today in an old guy who uh, saw something awesome. And no, I'm not talking about myself. Nasty people. <laughs> I'm not the old, but somebody who shall remain nameless said I was the old guy. That was, a, that was a low blow. That was a low blow. All right, get a load of this old guy and what he saw. We are in Luke chapter 2, beginning at the 25th verse. I love this. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God, saying, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For mine eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. I'll tell you something off script here. I didn't write this. It's not technically part of the sermon. But uh, this passage restored my faith a few years ago. It might seem hard to believe. You're like, Todd, you're a Bible preacher. Almost, almost lost my faith for a bit there. After my brother-in-law Robbie died and my working life was just utterly miserable and wretched. And uh, I went through a very dark few years. And my kids may remember this. Remember, it was Christmas morning. I was sitting in my chair. You're like, Dad, you always cry. But that year, I, I came to this passage, reading Luke 2 on Christmas morning. And as I read the story of Simeon, <laughs> my hard heart softened up, and my deaf ears were unstopped, and my eyes began to see once more the glory and the beauty of Christ. And just like that, on Christmas morning, I don't know, was it five years ago, six years ago, my uh, faith was restored. So I will do my best to uh, honor this text in the time remaining. My hope is this morning that it might change your life as well. I'm going to break the text into two parts for you. Uh, the first part will be verses 25 through 27. The second part will be verses 28 through 32. In section 1, verses 25 through 27, we will see what Simeon did while he was waiting. 
All right, so he's waiting. We'll see what he did while he was waiting in this first section. So here we're outlining or looking at his action, okay, the things that he did. In part two, verses 28 through 32, we will see what he saw when that thing that he was waiting for finally arrived. Okay, so two parts, his actions and then his perspective, what he saw. So uh, step one, part one here. I want to invite you, as we work through this first part of the text, to imagine yourself as Simeon. What's remarkable about Simeon was that he was not. He was not remarkable. He doesn't appear anywhere else in the Bible except right here in these verses. Never heard about him, never hear from him again. Unremarkable. A normal person living in Jerusalem. Just a dude. Okay, he's normal. He's unremarkable. We also discover that he is righteous and devout. We talk about this a lot in this church. Righteousness means right action, doing the right thing at any given moment. Makes life a lot easier when you reduce it to that. What's the right thing to do in this moment? Do that. Next moment, what's the right thing to do in this moment? Do that. That is what righteousness looks like. This man was righteous, okay, meaning he did the right thing. I prefer as a Jesus-loving Bible preacher to always say he was learning to do the right thing because we know that there is none righteous, no, not one. Okay, so this is where your theology has to inform your work in the text. It doesn't mean he was perfect. No such thing as a perfect person. But, because the Bible calls him righteous, we can surmise that he was learning to do the right thing day by day in any given situation. This man was righteous and devout. Devout means simply that his focus was on the Lord God of Israel. His focus was in the right place. This is tremendously instructive to us in our busy Western lives. You'll know that your focus is often on many things. And throughout the day, that's required, right? You have tasks to do, you have jobs to do, you have a vision to pursue. You have to reduce your focus down to the terrestrial level. But a devout person is one who does the terrestrial while keeping his or her mind on the celestial. You keep your mind hid in Christ with God. And then you do everything as unto the Lord. So the focus that you bring to your daily life is focus borrowed from the King of Kings. This man was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the right thing. What is the right thing? He was waiting for the consolation of Israel. Literally here, he's waiting for the Messiah. He's waiting for the Savior to show up. He's waiting for the right thing. We're waiting for the light to turn. We're waiting to buy gas. We're waiting for our spouse to be perfected. We should be waiting for the right thing. What is the right thing? The consolation of Israel. Who is the right one? The Messiah. We should be waiting for the right thing. This man, Simeon, was just and devout, waiting for the right thing waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him, which is a sure sign in Bible, Bible language that he was God's friend. Okay, this is pre-Acts 2. Okay, this is pre-the Holy Spirit being poured out on the followers of Jesus. So pre-Acts 2, it was typically reserved for prophets, prophetesses, kings, judges. Okay, and once in a while the odd weirdo got filled with the Holy Spirit for a moment to do something, to affect a job for God. So it's rare here. The fact that this man is singled out as having the Holy Spirit upon him is a sure sign that he was God's friend. This is a pretty good person to copy. Just, devout, waiting for the right thing, full of the Holy Spirit. He's a friend of God. I love this. Why? Because this sounds kind of like us. In ever-increasing measure, sure, none of us are Simeon quality yet. 
But surely you've seen some of these things showing up in your life, have you not? The first signs of righteousness, the first signs of devotion, the first signs of right priorities, waiting for the right thing. Surely you've experienced once in a while the presence of God at work in you, through you, all around you, as you work your way through this difficult life. Can someone say, I have? I have. Yes, I have. So this sounds kind of like you, and also, as all good sermons should, uh, it points to the future. This sounds a lot like what you will be. The day is coming when you will be able to say, by God's grace, I am righteous and devout, fixated on the right thing, full of the Holy Spirit. I love this. We're all normal people waiting for something. The point here is to do the right thing while being focused on the right thing, while waiting for the right thing. It's kind of the whole sermon right there. Okay, we're all normal people waiting for something, so do the right thing while being focused on the right thing, while waiting for the right thing. <coughs> He's waiting for the Messiah. He's waiting for Jesus. Can I invite you this morning to get more and more comfortable in your normalness? This is quite countercultural. Everyone's looking to be exceptional. You're a product of North American culture. Yes, it's very big in America, but it, that way of thinking has seeped into Canadian culture as well. The idea that we are all somehow exceptional. And if we do not rise to the level of exceptional, we've somehow failed. Let me say that that is not a Christian worldview. Christian worldview is that God is exceptional. He's beautiful. He and he alone is worthy to receive glory and honor and power and praise. You and me, we're just normal people. The more comfortable you get with your normalness, the happier your life will be. Somebody shout at me. Right? Amen. Hear me, church. The more normal you are and the more comfortable you are with being normal, the happier you'll be. The more you just fixate on doing the right thing moment by moment, the more you focus on God and your friendship with Him while you wait for Jesus, the happier you'll be. Everybody wants to be happy, don't you? I sure do. Waiting for Jesus. Why is Jesus such a big deal? Because when you meet Jesus, everything else falls into line, including death. Verse 26, It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. Let me point out one thing here. The word see and seen is the exact same word in the original language. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. The original word is acquainted with. This is awesome. You'll see why in just a second. Maybe you're already ahead of me. Smart, beautiful people. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not become acquainted with death until he had become acquainted with the Lord's Christ. Why is this awesome? Because <laughs> once you meet Jesus, you've met the death killer. <laughs> Somebody got to say, oh, ho, 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 ho. And once you've met the death killer, death got no sting no more. So in this sense, Simeon's way of being is like your way of being now. It revealed to him that he would not become acquainted with death until he became acquainted with the Lord's Christ. Once you meet the Lord's Christ, death loses its sting. This is how you can live. You can get to know the Lord Christ. And when you know the Lord Christ, everything else, including death, falls into line beneath his reign. I love this. The other thing that's beautiful here is that just like the Spirit led Simeon into the temple that day, and he came by the Spirit into the temple, 
You can trust the Spirit to lead you where you need to go. I mean, how awesome is that? And he came in the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed the Lord and said, can I just point out that the Spirit led Simeon to his destiny? Let's take it one step further. This means that God the Spirit led Simeon to meet God the Son. Let's take it one step further. God leads his people to himself. I'll clap for that. (laughs) How much does that help you relax in your own journey with God? How much does that help you relax in your own journey as you seek to see the Lord, call your loved ones, your friends, your neighbors, your family, your co-workers to new life in Christ? You can stop stressing out about it because we see here a beautiful pattern that God leads his people to himself Open up your Bible almost anywhere, and you will see God leading his people to himself. So amazing. That's how you wait, knowing that that's the business God is in. Leading his people to himself. That's how you wait. Celebrating normalness, doing the right thing, focused on the right thing, waiting for Jesus, growing in friendship with him, and trusting the Spirit to lead you to your destiny. How many of you need to trust the Spirit to lead you to your destiny this year? You need to trust Him. He's got this. What's awesome is that when you finally do find what you've been looking for, I won't be surprised at all if it looks a lot like what Simeon saw. Let's unpack what he saw. Part 2, verses 29 through 32. Here's what he saw. Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For mine eyes have seen your salvation which you have prepared in the face, in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. He saw a few things here. One, he saw that salvation belongs to God. You see that in the text? For mine eyes have seen your salvation, your salvation, verse 30. I want to tell you this morning, that thing that you need more than anything else, salvation, God owns it. Do you see the application embedded in this great truth? If God owns it, you should stop trying to take control of it. Stop trying to take control of your own salvation. God owns it. For mine eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared. The second thing he sees is that God has been working on this great salvation. How nice is it to know that salvation is something that God cooked up? He has prepared it. Verse 31. This is a reminder to you and me that God is the primary mover in salvation. We must never forget this. He's the first actor. He's the primary mover. So you might be thinking, um, okay, so then what does it mean, Todd, to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling? Philippians 2.12. That means that in light of what God has done, you do your part as his very junior partner. You ever seen a kid daughter, kid sister, playing with her older sister? Who's the prime mover? The older sister. Does the little sister know that big sister is really the one pulling the strings? No, she doesn't. She's a little sister. She thinks that she's actually doing the gardening with big sister. When you and I know that big sister's probably going back to correct all her hedgerows after little sister has massacred them. Little sister doesn't know. 
You're the little sister. You're the junior partner. Okay, that's what it means to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. I think the rest of it goes for it is God who works in you both to do and to will for his good pleasure. Like all good theology, it points to God, points to you, points back to God. Do your part as his very junior partner. A big part of which is telling everybody about the hope you found in Jesus. This is how the Gospel of Matthew ends. Go, therefore, in light of everything Jesus has said and done, and make what? Disciples, of whom? All nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, Matthew 28, 19. Why all nations? Well, because Luke 2, verse 30 and 31. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the presence of who? Of all peoples. In the original language here, in the presence of, literally means in the face of. For mine eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the face of all peoples. Kata pros opon panton ton leon. Panton. Pantheon. In the face of all of. Ton leon. The peoples. According to the face of all peoples. I want you to know in the original language here, which you have prepared in the face of all people is confrontational. Now, confrontational can seem like a bad word. Like you think of linebacker Todd as confrontational. It's not that kind of confrontational. Okay? This is the kind of confrontational it is. Hear me now. This is very important. You fulfill the Great Commission as everyone around you is confronted with the undisputable evidence of how the love of God shown towards you in Christ has absolutely changed everything for you. It's how you fulfill the Great Commission. So if you can't honestly say that salvation has changed everything for you, or let's, again, let's preach it right. If you can't honestly say that salvation is changing everything for you, then you better take a good look at your soul. Because the experience of salvation is meant to be revelatory. You know what revelatory means? Like, wow! Pow! Holy smokes! It's like the aha moment of all aha moments. When was the last time your salvation felt like an aha moment for you, church? Let us not grow weary in doing good. Let us not forsake our first love. A light for revelation to the Gentiles. Friends, the light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not overcome it. Jesus is the light that brings revelation. Revelation in the biblical sense means to uncover something that was previously hidden, particularly when it comes to the good news about Jesus. So let me just say, I don't think the world needs churches with better systems or programming. And I don't think it needs better organized or more relevant Christians. What I think the world needs is more revelation. And I think that's what I need too. One of my consistent prayers every day, in fact, it's the first words uttered from my lips every morning. I walk down the stairs, I turn the corner towards the bathroom, and I say, show me your glory, Lord. And then I say the second sentence. Every day, same thing. Help me understand your ways, Lord. This ushers without thought from a heart that is seeking revelation. Why do I need revelation? Because I'm a Gentile. I am someone who didn't used to belong, but who now does.
I am a former outsider who has been welcomed inside the family of God. We who were not a people, now the people of God. 1 Peter 2.10 I have now been embraced as a member of God's family. I have a lot to learn. Help me understand your ways, O Lord. Show me your glory, God. I'm somebody who didn't used to belong, who now does. You are somebody who didn't used to belong, and you now do. That's redemption. That's revelation. That's glorious. And for the glory of your people Israel. You know what glorious means? It means heavy. Worship team, you can join me because I'm done. Glory means heavy. And for glory to your people Israel. Glory in the Hebrew is kavod. Okay, so listen to the etymology. Kavod is the word for glory. It comes from the root Hebrew word kaved. Okay? Kavod, kaved. Tod hu yoter kaved miniki. Tod is heavier than Nikki. Kaved. Kola kavod lo, lefachot hu All glory to him. At least he admitted it. Okay, in Hebrew, you don't say congratulations, you say kolakavod. All honor and glory to you. Kolakavod. Kaved, kavod. Glory is heavy. <laughs> I pray that you receive some of that heaviness this year. God's proprietary, active, inclusive, revelatory, welcoming, promise keeping love is what Simeon was waiting for, and it is what Simeon saw. You want to reduce this to one sentence? I don't often land the plane with one sentence, but this week I was kind of in the mood. Wait for love. Sounds pretty heavy duty. Also sounds like a pretty good waiting room strategy. <laughs>